So we are in our Old Covenant series, kind of looking systematically at the Old Covenant. We've looked at different types of law, moral, civil, ceremonial. We've looked at the physical tabernacle and all the different pieces of furniture in the physical tabernacle, the priest's clothes, the priest's work. We've looked at the Old Covenant calendar, all the different events that happened in the course of a year. And two Sunday nights ago, we began a study, which I promised you we'd get to before we moved on, of how the governance of Old Covenant Israel is or ought to be similar or dissimilar to the way modern nation states are governed. This is going to take more than one or two sermons, so we're kind of laying some groundwork. So I preached on that two Sunday nights ago. Last Sunday night I was absent uh, because I was in the United States, but tonight is our our second part in basically, you could call it almost a sub-series. We're still looking at the Old Covenant, but we are focusing in now on government, and particularly we're driving towards how the governance of Old Covenant Israel ought to affect our understanding of the governance of modern nation states, what God expects, what God intends, and so forth. This is going to be very much cumulative. So if you didn't hear the sermon from two weeks ago, after tonight, go on our website and go listen to it, and then file these away in your mind. And we're going to build building block upon building block until hopefully we all have a good, clear sense. I said last time that my sermon might not be greatly organized, and the same is true tonight. I'm finding in this little sub-series, it's just, it's such a complex issue with so many strands that I just, I am not like R.C. Sproul with a gift for just taking the ridiculously complex and boiling it right down. And I'm going to do my best to be as coherent and clear as I can, but I do feel as if there's a bit of an element of um, throwing some spaghetti at the wall and hoping some sticks. So, so bear in mind that it's going to be cumulative, might not be perfectly organized, but I, 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 I'm going to stick with showing you one biblical thing after another until I've, I've built a case for um, the understanding that I'm going to present to you about the relationship of Old Covenant Israel's um, governance to the governance of modern nation states. I'm not going to make that same caveat every week, all right? I did it two weeks ago, I did it tonight, so now you just... Week by week, I'll just do my best without the caveat. All right, so here we go. Week two. By way of reminder, we saw last time I preached on this subject that the Old Covenant nation of Israel was governed not merely by means of general revelation, including natural law, but also by special revelation, which added... Specific ceremonial laws and civic laws. And clarified God's moral law, which had been written upon mankind's heart at creation, but had been obscured in men's apprehension and consciences by the fall. So God clarified it. He re-proclaimed. Our understanding at CRBC is that the Ten Commandments weren't new, but they were reiterated and clarified at Sinai because after the fall, men's consciences are an unreliable guide to what's right and wrong. Romans 2 picks up this idea and says that sometimes our consciences 
accuse or even excuse us. Sometimes they accuse us when we're not guilty. Sometimes they excuse us when we are. So our conscience is not an entirely 100% reliable guide. So God clarified moral law and then gave further special revelation to add civil laws and ceremonial laws to the nation of Israel. Israel, therefore, had special revelation from God, which other nations did not have. However, that absence of special revelation did not delegitimize the other nations as if they weren't real nations. It's not as if God was not governing them in any sense. They, of course, had also God's law written on their hearts at creation and had a sense of God's reality, His existence by virtue of being made in His image and brought into covenantal relationship with Him at the beginning as Adam's whole race was. So God governed Israel by general revelation and special revelation. But God still governed the other nations by general revelation and by what they knew of Him by virtue of being made in His image. By virtue of being in covenantal relationship to Him and having had the law written on their hearts at creation. But in the case of other nations outside Old Covenant Israel, God added no special revelation the way He did with the people of Israel. This is all review from two weeks ago. Here's a new piece of info though, as we dive into our study tonight, something I didn't share with you two weeks ago. God governed the nations outside Israel by general revelation, not in an every man for himself kind of way, as if every man just had to make do and figure out what's up and fend for himself according to general revelation. But rather, God governed Old Testament nations other than Israel by kings, governors, pharaohs, and other forms of human government. The information and the basis upon which human government outside of the nation of Israel could be expected reasonably to govern was general revelation including natural law, conscience, and a sense of God. That's it. That is the information and that is the basis upon which those nations which did not have special revelation could be expected to govern. But according to Romans chapter 13 and verse 4, they were servants... These pharaohs, these kings, these governors were servants of God for the good of their people. The rulers, the, the authorities, Romans 13.4 says, is God's servant for your good. Paul universalizes the principle that he's teaching in Romans 13.4. To the Roman church, admittedly, many years later. When he says in verse 1, For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist 
have been instituted by God. So it wasn't just the case that Paul was saying to the Romans, hey, the authorities over you are God's servants for your good. Because Paul is, is writing to the Romans saying, the authority over you has been instituted by God and is God's servant for your good, as are all authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. This means that the pharaohs of Egypt, the kings of Canaan, the chieftains of nomadic peoples and indigenous tribes living on other continents, the Arawaks and the Caribs, and all human governments around the world in Old Testament times were instituted by God and were expected to govern their people for their good in spite of the fact that they only had general revelation, including natural law, conscience, and a sense of God. This helps shed some light on what Paul has to mean by necessity then. When in Romans 13 and verse 4, he says that governing authorities are from God and are God's servants for the good of the people they govern. Paul has to be speaking about merely a civic good, a societal good, a temporal good, as opposed to a holistic good, including a spiritual good, for the very reason that these guys didn't have special revelation. And general revelation is inadequate for reconciling fallen men to God. We know enough about God to be rendered inexcusable for our unbelief, for our idolatry, for our treason towards Him. The law written on our hearts, though our sense of it and our apprehension of it is not 100% reliable, we were nevertheless objectively placed under it and we breached it. And even what sense we have of God's law, we have violated it. We are guilty. General revelation, including natural law, conscience, a sense of God, is enough to render man inexcusable and damned to hell. But general revelation is not sufficient for recon reconciling men to God. And yet, all these authorities, contemporary to the government of Israel, were instituted by God and were God's servants for the good of the people whom they governed. Therefore, the good has to be reduced to merely a civic good, merely a societal good. There is no possible way that those governments without special revelation could have done holistic good, including spiritual good, to their citizens. Human government was, in Old Testament times, therefore, 
In Old Testament times, therefore, that's all I'm trying to make a case for right now. An institution of God for the human race. The whole human race. Including civilizations who had received no special revelation. And human government was in those days to aim merely at the civic good of the people. Not having been furnished with what is needful to pursue the spiritual good of its consistency. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on Him of whom they never heard? They did not have what was needful to do spiritual good to their constituents. And yet we understand this universal principle from Romans 13 that human authorities are instituted by God for the good of people. The sense of it, therefore, is civic good. Temporal good. Societal good, merely. Dominion is part of what Adam was tasked with in the garden. That's why I read from Genesis chapter 1. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. Though ruling over other human beings is obviously not explicitly stated here. It is in keeping with the law written on Adam's heart that there would be authority structures between human beings. For example, honor your father and your mother. And it is also deducible from general revelation that cooperation and therefore leadership and followership would be required in the enterprise of global dominion. If Adam was to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing, he's going to need to cooperate with other humans. And listen, contrary to what you hear these days, Aside from any biblical principle, uh, any explicit biblical statement to this effect, even general revelation tells us that entirely egalitarian groups do not and cannot work effectively. Students, students cannot get together on a group project and have no one take initiative and offer some sort of structure to the group and just happen to pull it together. It is not possible. Your workplace cannot function without some sort of hierarchy. So we know it from the Bible and we know it from general revelation that there, there must needs be human government in order for Adam to fulfill this creation mandate, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over everything. And so the concept of human government Leadership and followership is part and parcel of God's design for humanity unfolded to us in Genesis chapter 1. The concept in, is in Genesis chapter 1 in seed form and is later stated explicitly in Romans 13. And we read about many kings in between Genesis 1 and Romans 13 who are assumed to be legitimate in spite not only of the absence of special revelation to guide them, they didn't have special revelation to guide them, 
but they're nevertheless assumed to be legitimate. But also in spite of the fact that many of them were ungodly and wicked, nevertheless, they're still assumed to be legitimate. They're still called kings. The kings east of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom Israel went to war with and killed on their way into into Canaan. We read about king after king after king in the conquest. We read about King Agag, who uh, Samuel, I believe it was, hacked to pieces when Saul was unfaithful to do it. We read about Solomon making treaties and agreements with other kings. The Bible doesn't say, well, there are no kings at all. And those nations are no nations at all. The Bible recognizes and assumes between Genesis 1 and Romans 13 the legitimacy of other nations and the legitimacy of other kings in spite of the fact that they had only general revelation, in spite of the fact that many of them were wicked and ungodly. In Genesis 1, in seed form, human government is woven into the very fabric of creation and the created order. And in Romans 13, we have that stated explicitly. There is no authority that exists apart from the institution of God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Now this leads us to our next point. Kings retain legitimate authority in spite of tyranny and paganism. Kings retain legitimate authority in spite of tyranny and paganism. On this point, Calvin says... If we direct our attention to the Word of God, it will carry us even to submit to the government, not only of princes who discharge their duty to us with becoming integrity and fidelity, but also to all who possess sovereignty, even though they perform none of the duties of their function. A man of the worst character and most undeserving of all honor, who holds the sovereign power, really possesses that eminent and divine authority which the Lord has given by His Word to the ministers of His justice and judgment. And therefore, He, that is, the man of the worst character and most undeserving of honor, and He ought to be regarded by His subjects as far as pertains public obedience, with the same reverence and esteem which they would show to the best of kings if one were granted to them. Calvin. He says elsewhere, Tyrants and those like them do not produce such effects by their abuse, but that the ordinance of God ever remains in force as the institution of marriage is not subverted, though the wife and husband were to act in a way not becoming them. In other words, in modern English, even if you have a bad husband or wife, he's still your husband, or she's still your wife. And even if you have a bad king, he's still your king. This is Calvin's understanding. God does not, of course, legitimize tyranny in legitimizing tyrants, they will answer to him. 
But nevertheless, the legitimacy of their office stands in spite even of tyranny and ungodliness. This is Calvin's understanding. And this is evident biblically from the assumption throughout the Old Testament that I mentioned to you a few moments ago that the kings of other nations really are kings. Even though many of them were tyrants. Many of them, most of them, almost all of them were ungodly. Perhaps maybe one or two converts along the way. Also, this is evident biblically from the very fact that Pilate really does possess authority to crucify Jesus. As is evident from Jesus' conversation with him in John 19. Pilate says, do you not know that I have authority to crucify you or to release you? And Jesus doesn't say, no you don't. Jesus says, you would have no authority at all unless it was given to you from above. Implicitly acknowledging that in terms of the temporal affairs, this is Pilate's jurisdiction to decide Jesus' fate. And the fact that Paul writes in Romans 13 and verse 1 that there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. The legitimacy of the office stands in spite of tyranny and ungodliness. God puts them in office and endorses their office and condones the legitimacy of their authority even if he does not condone the way in which they use that authority. For example, God gave authority to Pilate over Judea and condones Pilate's authority over that region. Though he obviously does not condone the decision of Pilate to have Jesus crucified. Now, implications of this. One, foreign lands in Old Testament times, and by foreign I mean outside of Israel, foreign lands in Old Testament times were not by rights Israel's land. Under the presumption that these other nations had forfeited their legitimacy as nations and their, legitimacy, their kings had forfeited their right to rule. Because they did not rule according to God's prescription. Therefore, they're no kings at all. Therefore, they have no authority at, at all. Therefore, they have no jurisdiction at all. And really, by rights, it belongs to the people of God who are under God's, the direction of God's special revelation. No. On the contrary, those lands belonged to other nations. And those kings were appointed by God to rule over those other nations. Those kings had a rightful jurisdiction. And God expected the people under them to obey them. Except, of course, where they commanded what God prohibited or prohibited what God commanded. Did those kings have unlimited jurisdiction? No. But did they have legitimate jurisdiction? Yes, they did. They were appointed by God to rule over their jurisdiction. 
for the civic good of the people entrusted to their care. Now this brings us to a natural place for me to elaborate on what I alluded to just a moment ago. Obedience to government is required of mankind except where government commands what God prohibits or prohibits what God commands. In Acts chapter 5.29 we have that famous statement of the apostles. We must obey God rather than men. There is going to be or there are going to be instances and cases in which we must not obey government. Sorry, I'm coming already to modern day. There would have been cases in Old Testament times in which mankind ought to disobey government and obey God. One thinks, for example, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego playing this deadly game akin to musical chairs where when the music stops, everybody doesn't just simply race for a chair at the pain of losing the game and sitting on the sideline of the birthday party, but where one who does not bow when the music stops is thrown into a fiery furnace. But God said, you shall have no other gods before me. We must obey God rather than men. However, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 2, we read, we read this on the other side of the coin. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So, so the rule to which there may be made an exception is that we are to obey the authorities whom God has instituted and appointed over us in His providence. Even the, even the tyrants, even the pagans, they have a legitimate authority over their jurisdiction for the civic good of those entrusted to their care. They're answerable to God for how they carry that out. But the rule is, we obey them with respect to the civic good within the jurisdiction that God has assigned to them. So when I'm not in Canada, I don't obey Canadian laws because I'm not within their jurisdiction. When I'm in Canada, I don't obey Beijing laws. But when I'm in Barbados, I ought to obey Beijing laws. When I'm in Canada, I ought to obey Canadian laws. Unless it's a case where I must obey God rather than men. In the rest of the cases, I obey God by obeying men. I just can't help but coming into the modern day. We'll get there, we'll get there a little more thoroughly. I'm really trying to make a case here uh, for, for the Old Testament understanding for now. And then next week or the week after, I'm going to try to try to get into like how and why this still applies in the modern day. So forgive me if I'm trying to sneak it in there and not undergirding that. Take what I'm saying at least as being applicable to nations contemporary to Old Covenant Israel. And just, if you're unconvinced about the modern day, at least just try that on for size for now. 
at least the other with respect to other nations contemporary to Old Covenant Israel. All right. Doubtless, there were many bad policies in Old Testament times in nations around Israel. You think you think that those nations around Israel were governed by good policy, wise, prudent, fair governments? No. Nah. No, very much not. I would, I would rather live in almost any modern country than in any ancient one. They were not, they were not known for excellent policy. And yet, both the assumption of both the Old Testament and the New, as I read from Romans 13 too, is that mankind is responsible to obey civic authorities except where government commands what God prohibits or prohibits what God commands. So, bad policy does not negate the legitimacy of governmental authority over the civic realm. So if in Old Testament times or the first century you were supposed to bow down to an idol when the music stops, you should choose the furnace. But if you're supposed to pay taxes to an ungodly pagan government, pay taxes. Another important implication of this is that God legitimizes the authority of governments which are not theocracies like Old Covenant Israel was. The Old Testament simply does not allow for a binary choice between supposedly legitimate theonomy, God's law, and supposedly illegitimate autonomy, or autonomy, self-law. The way that some people want to frame it, including Greg Bonson, who is a, a proponent of what's called theonomy. He sets it up in this binary way that we have to choose either between God's law, theonomy, or self-law, autonomy. The Old Testament simply does not allow for a binary choice between those two options. It's reductionistic. It's a false dichotomy. God endorses throughout the scripture the legitimacy of nations and the legitimacy of governments outside theocratically governed Israel. Going so far as to say that these are servants of God for the civic good of the people in their jurisdictions. And that there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, God legitimizes the authority of governments which are not theocracies as Old Covenant Israel was. The dominion of men is endorsed by God in principle. The dominion of men over one another is endorsed by God in principle. Even when it is exercised apart from special revelation and not grounded in a biblical worldview. King Sihon was really a king. 
King Og was really a king. Pharaoh was really Pharaoh. Egypt was really a legitimate nation. All the Canaanite nations were really legitimate nations. And the scripture tells us in seed form in Genesis 1 and in Romans 13 explicitly that God designed it that way. That men would rule over one another as part and parcel of the way He designed things to be in creation. The dominion of man is endorsed by God in principle, even when it is exercised apart from special revelation and is not grounded in a biblical worldview. Now, that being said, would you rather live in North Korea or Barbados? Would you rather live in Barbados or heaven? (laughs) The legitimization of human government in principle does not relativize the skill and competence involved in governing well so as to make it seem like all nations are equally good. It would be a non sequitur. It would not follow logically to argue that, well, if God endorses human government in principle, then all na- you're saying all nations are equally good? No, that's not at all what I'm saying. It does not follow from the fact that simply because God intended for men to cooperate with one another from the beginning in filling the earth and, and in subduing it, which involves and necessitates leadership and followership, that God endorses the legitimacy of kings outside of Old Covenant Israel and the nations that they govern, it does not follow that all of those nations were equally good, equally ideal, equally blessed places to live. Some nations are better than others. But our great hope continues to be in the human government which is yet to come. One day, the son of David will rule and reign over us. Let me say it like this, geopolitically. Okay? Because Jesus already reigns. But his kingdom is not of this world, he tells Pilate in John chapter 18. All right? One day, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Revelation eleven fifteen, Which means that one day, Jesus' kingdom will be of this world. And that's what I mean by geopolitical. Jesus is the second Adam. And Jesus is the son of David. Now if Adam's sons had come along and and said, we will rule over you, Dad, it would be an inversion of the natural order of things. Right? Which is not to say in the modern world that fathers can't work for their sons, sons can't take over the family business, blah, blah, blah. Not saying that at all. But, but what I'm saying is sort of, if Adam had not sinned, the natural leader of the human race would have been Adam. Had Adam not sinned, 
he who was appointed as a covenant head and representative of the human race, who was the oldest man in existence, would be the natural leader. Right? Jesus is the second Adam, the covenant head and representative of redeemed humanity. And part of what Jesus does, a huge part of understanding what Jesus does, is coming and doing what Adam should have done but did not do in the first place. Which in this case, as pertains to our sermon tonight, is to rule over his brethren. Rule over the race of men. Jesus is the son of David. More on this in a moment. But simply recognizing that David, the king, had a lineage of kings and was promised that one day he would have a son whose throne would be established forever. Through Jesus, the son of David and the second Adam, God will perfectly and completely bring to pass his original purpose of having earth ruled by a man who impeccably and universally brings about the civic good of His people. You see, that's the way God designed it from the beginning, is that mankind would flourish ultimately under God, but with a man as a vice-regent. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says this, Daniel is recounting a vision that he had. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, who came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. There's the second Adam. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 13. God is speaking to David about his son. And he says, I shall establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In Psalm 72, verses 8 to 14, we read... A psalm that is typical, it typifies, it's typology, which typifies the ultimate reign of David's greater son. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. What will his reign be like? For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in His sight. You see the civic good? The blessedness of living under this man who is the son of man given an eternal dominion. The son of David given a throne which will last forever. 
when He takes dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, our longing for civic good comes to its fullest fruition under the reign of Christ Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 presents us as David's, presents us with Jesus as David's son. And according to D.A. Carson, I'm taking his academic uh, credibility here, he says, he says that there's uh, symbolic use of the 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations to symbolize David, David, David in Matthew chapter 1. I don't fully understand how he got there, but that man's been studying his whole life, and I'm inclined to believe him. <laughs> But nevertheless, in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is presented to us as the son of David. And Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, introducing the gospel, it's the gospel of Jesus, the son of David. So whether or not the David, David, David thing in Matthew 1 is true or not, the New Testament clearly presents us with Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises to set a son of David on his throne forever. So, well, God has designed it that there would be human government in between creation and consummation. That human government is legitimate even where there is no special revelation. Even when tyrants rule and even when nation states are governed not in accordance with the biblical worldview, God says, when they command what I prohibit, don't do it. When they prohibit what I command, do what I command you anyway. But the rest of the time, obey them. Because I set it up that way. I have instituted human government. I've woven it in. Whether they're good rulers or bad rulers, they are my servants for your good. They'll give an answer to me, but they have civic authority within their jurisdictions. So obey them. It doesn't follow from that that all nations do an equally good job at pursuing and promoting civic good. And our ultimate hope is not in the next prime minister or president or king or whatever. Our ultimate hope is in the second Adam, the son of David, who is going to be the human vice regent of our triune God, Ruling as man, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He will rule over us as the second Adam, as the son of David, bringing about perfect civic good in his kingdom, which is an eternal kingdom where righteousness shall dwell. That's where our hope needs to be. In the meantime, we live under legitimate princes, but as Psalm 146 in verse 3 says, put not your trust in princes. We live here, we got to obey them, it's part of common life here under the sun, but put not your trust in princes. When Jesus comes back, He is the second Adam, the son of David, who will bring to full fruition the intended civic good that God always designed for His people to experience under a human king.